You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, we revisit my conversation with Sister Helen Prejean, the tireless activist fighting the death penalty. When we met in the studio to talk about her new memoir, Sister Prejean bemoaned the Trump administration's 2019 decision to end the federal moratorium and resume executions. On July 1st of 2021, the Biden administration's Department of Justice announced the reimposition of the federal moratorium pending review of Trump-era policies. When the movie Dead Man Walking hit theaters, about 80% of Americans supported capital punishment. Now, it's just 50%. And religious voices have long been part of the debate. This conversation from 2019 explores how Sister Prejean found her way into her role as one of the most well-known faith-based advocates to end the death penalty. It's a journey she documents in her memoir, River of Fire. It is, in many ways, a prequel to Dead Man Walking, which is where our conversation begins. The first thing Tim Robbins, when we do in the film of Dead Man Walking, first thing he explained to me was the difference between art and propaganda. So he says, I, in my DNA molecules, am against the death penalty. So I could shape a story. So we do the crime early on, then it kind of fades. Mm. Then you see the one who did the murder, the audience is following, he goes through a conversion, you're with him, then you see him executed, you see him asking forgiveness, and you forget about the victims. And the boldest thing that he did was when they did the final editing of the film, he said everyone else on the editing group was saying to him, Tim, end the film of Dead Man Walking with the execution of Matthew Ponsolet because you have the audience. He's been through his conversion. Don't show the murders again. Mm. And Tim said, I don't want to have the audience. So he juxtaposes at the end of Dead Man Walking, you see the execution of Matthew Ponsolet, and then you see his crime in the woods of killing one of the innocent people there in the woods. And it leaves the audience torn between the two. The one thing Tim felt wonderful about was he got letters from victims' families saying, thank you for the way you portrayed us. You didn't portray us as these frenzied people saying, kill them, kill them, I want you to kill them. Shows the real agony and struggle. So the audience struggled too. So Dead Man Walking, which came out end of 95, got four nominations and Susan got the Oscar. It changed the way death penalty films were done in the United States. It changed the discourse because when you do art, you honestly bring people over to two sides of a question. You let them sort it out. When you do propaganda, you shape the story in a way you can only come out one way. And his movie didn't do that. No, no, it was it was really great. I mean, and you got to know that it was Susan Sarandon that made the film happen. She read the book, uh, Dead Man Walking, as soon as it came out in paperback in 94. Look how quickly things happened. Hardback, A Dead Man, 93. Paperback, 94. Susan reads it, 94. By the end of 95, we have a first-class film. That's all God working for me. <laughs> you just get your little boat on the wave, but boy, that wave, the wave. It, uh, and then she got the Academy Award, and there were 1.3 billion people watching that night. 
it also changed the way in which we think about and talk about and engage in these social justice yes. um, discourse. Mm-hmm. And are you still involved today? Are oh, yeah. Are you still engaged? Well, what I'm with the seventh to? person accompanying on death row, Manuel Ortiz. The, he's the third out of the seven people I've accompanied on death row who's innocent. Mm. That's how broken this system is because it's poor people who can't get a crack-a-jack of defense and no resources to do independent forensic testing. Supposed to have the adversarial way of coming to truth at trial, but when you have all poor people selected for death, you don't have that. And over 90% of the 166 wrongfully convicted people who've gotten off a death row is because of prosecutorial misconduct. Prosecutors get in there, they're in control of the evidence, and they want to win. Mm. Winning is their object, not justice. And you have all these mistakes made. So anyway, what I've learned along the way, I learned about the criminal justice system. I've learned about how the law works. And I have learned that you can meet human beings who have done unspeakable acts and see that everybody is worth more than the worst thing they've ever done, which is where the message of Jesus and the gospel and Christianity comes in. I hate to see the way politicians pervert Christianity and use it for their own purposes. Like Jeff Sessions, the former attorney general, when he quoted Romans 13 to justify the separation of children from their parents at the border. You have this proof texting that goes on where people select a biblical quote And in this case, Jeff Sessions, as Justice Scalia did before with the death penalty, quoted Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 13, where they say, obey civil authority, that's the authority of God. They don't have the context when that scripture was written, that it was that the Jews were squabbling with each other so much in Rome that it had made the emperor ban all the Jews from Rome. So in that context, Paul is saying to the Jewish people, obey civil authority, stop all these stupid squabbles. That's a voice of God for you. But then when you want a proof text, you absolutize that and say, if something is the law in the United States, like you cannot illegally come across this border and these human beings coming here for asylum come illegally and they bring their children, we're justified in separating children from the parents. And that's how religion is used to justify wrongful things that hurt and even kill people, even the death penalty. So I've seen how religion's used. So one of the reasons I wrote River of Fire Mm. to talk about the spiritual journey that led me to death row in the first place is getting Jesus right. Well, let's talk about that. Christianity right. Thank you for that perspective and for connecting the process. In reading, I found you making connections and toggling between the things that we're wrestling with today to things that you've seen and our legacy, our historical yeah, sure. engagement. Well, we always do that. We hopefully do that, don't we? Then we understand. Well, well, that's what spiritual reflection is about. It's what's a connection here? What's the meaning in my life? The gift of Vatican II to the Catholic Church was, let's take this faith and all the dogmas and all that and look at our personal experience and life in the world and connect so that we get meaning. It was the first council we ever had in the Catholic Church not to condemn heresy as somebody else. It was, how do we relate to the world in a meaningful way with the gospel of Jesus that has so much to offer about compassion instead of retribution all that? 
what is Vatican II for those of yeah, us who right. are not familiar with it and may not be up on our sure. papal history? It was an ecumenical council in the Catholic Church that happened from 62 to 65 under the leadership of Pope John the Twenty-Third, who was a little roly-poly guy who smoked that the curia voted to be pope thinking he'd be an interim pope. He hardly was an interim pope. Two months into the papal office, he said, I was praying, and the Holy Spirit has told me it's time for us to have a council on the church where we can update the church, open the windows of the church, take a look at the dogmas and teachings of the church, look at the time in which they were written to make sense for our faith in a way that we haven't before. That happened in 62 to 65. It really affected nuns because when I went into the community in 57, it was in the old style of you practice blind obedience to a superior. You keep silent. You pray for the world. You go out to teach, but you're separated from the world because basically the world is an evil or a sinful place. So really sequestered. Sequestered. Because we're what you call an apostolic order. Our, our purpose is to serve. It's not just to be a cloistered nun, contemplative and only praying for the world. What drew you? at the age of 18, to become a nun? I'm going to tell you. There were dynamic models. Our sisters that taught us at St. Joseph Academy in Baton Rouge, I wanted to be a teacher so that you had a fine intellectual life. They were great teachers. They challenged us, taught us how to think. They were humorous. They were funny. I mean, they were really human, and they had deep faith. And I wanted that. In those days, in the 50s, you became a nun or you got married. If you were a poor single woman, you were nothing. It was just like neither fish nor flesh. So I chose the nun part, came from a good Catholic family. And I wanted to learn how to pray. I wanted to live out of the deep interior of my life. And I knew that as a nun, I would be given all kinds of resources and time for a spiritual life. I'd be able to make retreats. I'd always be going to conferences. That I'd be with fellow searchers in the spiritual life where the spiritual life would be prized. And I have not been disappointed. What happens when you decide, I've been called? Take us back to what, what that experience was like well, in the first couple days. Well, I write about it in River of Fire, leaving my Baton Rouge home with my wonderful family, Mama, Daddy, Marianne, Louie, and crying all the way to New Orleans to the division. Mm. But driving up and wiping away my tears, and you have to enter into your life. Can't think about home. I'm always going to be crying. I got to embrace this life because it was stark. You get up at quarter to five in the morning, you know, prayer and study. And, and I did. I believe, and I think this is a deep Zen thing. There's a common thing in all religious traditions about when we enter into something and embrace the present moment and give ourselves over to what we're called to do. This would be true of a student, a doctor, anybody. Then the grace meets you there. We had a maxim in the community, never leap ahead of grace. Sometimes waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning, you couldn't think of, I don't know if I can do this the rest of my life. <laughs> we had a sister in the division, Freddie. She'd get up in the morning. She'd kiss her bed after she made it. And she'd say, I'll be back to you as soon as I can get back. 
you can't take on your whole life, but you take it on a day at a time. I use the image of river in this book Mm -hmm. because it's like you ride a current. The present moment to handle it. And then the fire part comes, of course, with God's grace where a passion is enkindled in us. Is that what the fire is? That's what the fire is, is the passion. And in the preface of River of Fire, the fire and the death penalty came from the witnessing. And this was Patrick Sonia. He was the first person I accompanied on death row. And here's the fire. It's, it's an account of his execution on the night, early morning hours of April 5th, 1984. They killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him in a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act. No religious leaders protested the killing that night, but I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. And what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire that burns in me still. And here is an account of how I came to be in the killing chamber that night and the spiritual currents that brought me there. So when I say no religious leaders protested, we actually had an archbishop in New Orleans at the time who had been in the military who was for the death penalty. So from that night and the witnessing of that man being strapped down and rendered defenseless and killed began my dialogue with my Catholic Church about the death penalty and the nation with the American people about bringing people close to this to say, is this really who we are? Even with prisoners of war in the Geneva Convention, you cannot take a prisoner of war, render them defenseless, and take them out and shoot them. And that's what the death penalty is, an essential act where you render a person defenseless and kill them. So I knew coming out of that execution chamber in the middle of the night, Louisiana, after Pat had been executed, first thing I did was I threw up. I vomited. I'd never witnessed an act like that of that deliberate killing. And then I remember thinking of the American people, like they're good people. We have good people in the United States. People had been made to be afraid. There are some murderers who, by their very nature, you can't put them in prison. They'll kill again. That the only way we can be safe is to execute them. And when people are made to be afraid, as is happening at the southern border right now, we're being told that these people coming to our border are rapists and drug dealers and gang members who want to hurt us, want to take our jobs. When we're made to be afraid, And we don't see the reality of what's happening. There have been two court cases to try to make executions public, and they've both been defeated. It's a secret ritual that still goes on. And I was brought in as a witness, so my job was to tell the story. Been doing it ever since. Now, River of Fire is the spiritual journey that led to the awakening, finally, that the gospel of Jesus is about more than just being charitable to people around you and praying for God to solve the problems of the world. It's, as Pope Francis is urging us, is the church ought to be a field hospital out where the hurt and marginated and voiceless and people being killed are, and then to bring compassion there and to help change this system of government killing. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. 
We continue my conversation with Sister Helen Prejean. She's written a memoir, River of Fire, reflecting on her journey and life becoming a powerful force in the death penalty movement. Let's get back to the conversation, where I ask Sister Prejean for her thoughts about women in the Roman Catholic Church today, with Pope Francis at the helm. There is in the Catholic Church a growing discourse on the role of women, and you've been a voice in that. With Pope Francis, how have you engaged in conversation with him? Have you? And yes. and how are you feeling about where he is moving the church when it comes to the role of women and their leadership? Yeah. Well, you got to realize that when you're talking about, and you use the word church, you're talking about a whole body of people. One gift of Vatican II was for the first time, they defined the church as the people of God, not simply the hierarchy. Even today, when people are angry at the church, they say, I'm so mad at the church. They're talking about what some bishop did or some priest or something. The church is the people. So about women, I got to meet Pope Francis through a man who was innocent in Oklahoma, Richard Glossop, and enlisted the Pope's help in saving his life. And the Pope, he intervened, and he was part of it to save Richard Glossop's life. But in the process, when I got to meet the Pope, I handed him a personal letter, and it was about a terrible wound in the church, which is that the voices and wisdom of women is not heard in decisions the church is making. And it is not a healthy church to have all males all the time making all the policies and decisions. That's just not healthy. And we can see there's a lot of unhealthiness in the priesthood in the church, in the church itself. If the church truly is the people of God, and everybody baptized women as well as men, we need that full wisdom and that full healthiness. We need the full participation of women in leadership in the church as well. And I said to the Pope, I said, I have preached before the UN, before Congress, in many churches. but Protestant in my churches? Protestant churches all over the place, and the synagogue. But in my own Catholic church, I cannot preach and I cannot even proclaim the gospel at Mass. Only a male can do that. That's distorted. That's not according to the gospel of Jesus. And it needs to change. And it is going to change simply because what's not true and what's not whole is not going to last. So we have a growing number of voices of women just saying, you need us to be whole and to be healthy. So when you ask the question of priesthood, of course. What is it that simply by being a woman means that you cannot lead people in prayer? We have to ask that question. And then when you say, well, the answer is that it's got to be men. And then when you look at the arguments, because Jesus was a man, that is a purely accidental argument that has nothing to do with the spirit of who Jesus was about and what it means to be a spiritual leader. So you got to recognize the argument for what it is, purely sexism. Paul said, there is no man, no woman, no slave, no free, that when you come to Christians, you look at the gifts of the person and the spirit within the person. There's nothing 
about a woman who can't be a leader, a spiritual leader, as much as a man. So I've seen in 35 years of dialogue on the death penalty that things can change. I've been engaged with my church on that issue, and things have changed. Consciousness changes. And when consciousness changes, the culture of something changes. And I believe that same thing is going to happen around women in the church. Well, I'm curious how a new generation is coming up in response to this, because the role of women is one, but it's also the wrestling with accountability and repairing the lost trust over the number of systemic reports of abuse that have dominated not just the headlines, but discussion about the future of the Catholic Church. Well, you know what? The whole thing is, I use the symbol of river and fire for this awakening to what faith is. And Christianity, or Christian faith, is the following of Jesus and being him in the world. It's always going to be deeper and more true than what the institutional church is going to be able to embody. So there are all kinds of pockets of life within a religious tradition. Communities of faith, like people who are in the Catholic worker movement and are there with the homeless and the poor. Pockets of individual Christians who get in there and live the gospel. So the Christian life is always going to be about a prayer life, a deep interior life of meditation so that we operate from the inside out and are not just following some stimulus response. It's always going to be about community of people. And it's always going to be about where the wounded, where the hurt, where's compassion and justice needed in the world. And that takes many different forms. The form of religious life Nunst is taking now is young girls of 18 are not coming into the convent and making a lifelong vow of celibacy, poverty, and obedience. But through associates, women join with religious orders. Mm-hmm. And so you live your life, but you deepen your spiritual life, and then you join together in ministry to serve the world. The conversations arising out of River of Fire so interesting because I've done it in about eight different cities now. And it's just an audience of people. I have a starter conversation. I share what led to the book and so forth, and you open it to people. So the conversation is opening up of how do I have a deep spiritual life? How do I develop and strengthen my deep spiritual self? What's a connection between my deepest dreams and desires and having a purpose in the world, doing something meaningful? How do I not give in to the cynicism and the hopelessness when you just see, especially in leadership in the United States right now, where you just see such a moral bankruptcy of leadership, and you see people rising up in communities. Jesus talked about wheat and weeds always coming up together side by side, and that's what it all is. Well, so you're in a room, and you're having conversation, and these big questions come up around the conversation of River of Fire. How do you respond to the amount of cynicism and the overwhelming feeling of paralysis that so many people describe today, especially around our politics and the feeling that voices are not being heard. The big thing I've discovered about hope is if you're watching from the sidelines and you're just looking at the news, 
you lose hope more and more and more. You get more and more cynical. But when you're engaged, however small, but you have your hand on some rope where you're with a community of people engaged in making a difference, life flows through you. It's non-action that leaves us paralyzed. It's when we begin to act, life flows through us, and then suddenly we may not even realize it, but we are engaging in hope. That was Sister Helen Prejean, the nun behind the book and film that galvanized opposition to the death penalty in America. We were discussing her 2019 memoir, River of Fire, about the spiritual underpinnings of her life. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any portion, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. And while you're there, you can learn more about us. Check out the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can also subscribe to our podcast anywhere you listen. Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, you can help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a big shout out to our founder, Sister Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Lauren Marco. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show and distribute it to public radio stations around the country. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.